It is December 15th, 2021, and yes, the moment is finally upon us, the maiden voyage of your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky, and just a quick note, uh, a lot of people have been asking me about format for this and and what to expect, so we're going to be having interviews, lots of them with great people, but for the moment, just me riffing on the interesting topics of the day, giving you my, of course, very poignant and compelling take on them, so let's get into it right away here. A lot of stuff out of the court system recently it's kind of odd a lot of high profile court cases have all come up uh, kind of bunched together you know who knows if that's by design or not but let's start off with Jussie Smollett everybody's favorite hate crime hoaxer and Mighty Duck yes he was one of the original Mighty Ducks so everybody knows what happened with Jussie at this point um, he's been convicted the the what is is no longer interesting and dunking on Jussie Smollett for the millionth time no longer interesting as well so what is interesting about the situation particularly as we look at it back in, in retrospect um I think it's interesting that he thought he could get away with it. And why, of all things, does he choose this path? Did he choose this particular hoax in this manner, right? I mean, he put his his reputation, he put his personal finances and his freedom on the line for this. So what about this made it rational? And what about the incentives of modern American society kind of inspired him to choose this particular course? And, you know, listen, there's inflation all over the place. But one thing that has definitely inflated over you know, recent years is victimhood currency. There's no more powerful currency in American society recently than being a victim and victimhood. Okay. And you can see that with the just absolutely remarkable reaction to the Justice story right off the bat and to his initial claims. So this guy, I mean, right off, hey, by all means, if someone comes up with a story this, this kind of with, with this much heat around it, you know, there is an inclination to believe them because why would someone fabricate this? But the story smelled right off the bat. This guy's going in the middle of the winter in Chicago at 2 a.m. going to Subway and these cartoon caricatures, MAGA characters come up, somehow identify that he's from Empire. I don't know which MAGA types are watching Empire, uh, but, you know, scream out an ode to Donald Trump, attack him, put a noose around his neck and so on and so forth. Seems like the type of story that off the bat you would would have a little hesitation. You want to do a little more diligence on, but that's not the reaction. Look at the reaction that Jesse Smollett got from this story right off the bat. It's absolutely incredible. Essentially, you know, 90% of the authority figures on earth are just fawning over him. We have it right here. I'm going to give Kamala Harris, and I'm not going to be giving her many breaks over the years, but I'm going to give Kamala Harris a break because she knew Jesse. So, okay, you know somebody, you don't think that they're going to come up with this bullshit story. So that's fine. But she fawned over Jussie Smollett here. Uh, Joe Biden, our, our once and future president at the time, this was 2019. What happened to Jussie Smollett must never be tolerated in this country. We must stand up and demand that we no longer give this hate safe harbor, that homophobia and racism have no place on our streets or in our hearts. We are with you, Jussie. Cory Booker used this as an opportunity to uh, pander for the passage of the anti-lynching bill. And he mentions, you know, gives an ode to Jussie, the vicious attack on actor Jussie Smollett was an attempted modern day lynching. I'm glad he's safe. And there's just a ton of these. The entire media, late night television, which has become essentially just kind of an affiliate arm of of cable broadcast news and liberal leaning CNN and MSNBC. Uh, Elliot Page at that time, Ellen Page, uh, goes on a rant on Jimmy Kimmel about how the Jesse Smollett incident is further proof that America is a boiling hot cauldron of racism and homophobia and indicts America in its history. And of course, she gets that. Well, sorry, he, she at the time gets that to a standing ovation. Jussie, it's not that crazy for him. Look, he was incentivized. He knew that he was going to get this type of reaction. Had someone, an actor claimed a racist homophobic attack in pre, you know previous years. I mean, Let's even call it 2014, you know, Obama's the president, or let's even call it 2006, 2007, if George Bush and a bunch of evangelists in the White House, they're the ruling governing class, um, had someone claimed, you know, being the victim of a hate crime at that point, would the reaction, would there just be this, you know, you light the fuse and off goes running a firestorm of of messages about how this is uh, so evidence of American society and, oh my God, we stand with you. XYZ victim of this attack. I don't know. I don't I don't see that having happened. That wouldn't have happened 
in any prior era. But now in the age of victimhood and victimhood currency inflation, that's what we have. And it begs a larger question uh, about how we kind of transformed from, you know, some, and you go Google this and there's just endless studies and endless results, even more than I was suspecting about an honor society versus a victim society and how, you know, does a society solve for and value accomplishment and honor, or does it solve for who is the most oppressed and who's the biggest victim? Because that's what it seems to be. You know, right now, recent American history, you portray yourself as a victim. You kind of win the the battle of who is most oppressed, and you've just got every authority figure fawning over you, and, and there is an incentive. And Jesse Smollett played into that incentive. And who knows? Hey, these, these two brothers don't flip on him. I mean, he maybe gets away with it. And he had other powerful people on his side. Everyone is also kind of conveniently forgetting Chicago District Attorney uh, Kim Fox, who's, you know, kind of in the Jesse Smollett circles. She tried to drop the charges against him. OK, only after there was just an immense public reaction and the Chicago Police Department said, what the fuck are you doing? He, this guy just wasted all this money, you know, all of our manpower and and caused this big fuss for nothing. And it was a hoax. You can't let this guy off. Um, so. Jesse, with both powerful incentives in terms of victimhood and powerful friends on the inside, you know, hey, maybe it wasn't so crazy for him to think that he could get away with this. But uh, those, you know, and looking back and given the Jesse Smollett retrospective, I think a lot of that is super interesting Um, in terms of you know, how this plays out, the why underneath the why and why victimhood has become this powerful incentive and currency in our society. Um, one piece that I read that, I, you know, a while back that I thought was really good by Michael Tracy, one of uh, my favorite online curmudgeons. He's an independent writer and journalist, uh, talks a lot of shit, gets in a lot of battles, but I, I think for the most part is on the right side of the issues. I actually interviewed Michael Tracy. I can't believe it now. It's probably, it's about 18 months on the night, literally the night that the George Floyd riots began back in May, 2020. Um, so that's on my Instagram lives. If you want to go check out that, I think that's actually a very interesting interview to go check out because it's, almost portrays a snapshot of another universe, like before George Floyd and afterwards. So anyways, if you want to go take a look. But anyways, Michael Tracy wrote a piece called How AOC Links the Personal with the Political. And this kind of documents what I like to call the trauma industrial complex. And this is what I'm talking about, how there's now a system and a structure in place with language incentives, with social media incentives that you claim trauma, oppression, victimhood. That's a way to elevate yourself in society. Um, and so how Michael attacked it or that the approach that he took was in terms of how and uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez just continually, you know, made appeals to her trauma and her victimhood when describing the circumstances of January 6th. And so here's how Michael describes it. AOC is a highly skilled political communicator. So when she invoked what she said was a past sexual assault during the telling of this tale, the point was to connect the trauma from that alleged incident to the trauma she incurred on January 6th. This heightens the emotional salience of her demands for extreme remedial action. Everything from the expulsion of members of Congress to censorship purges. And I think that's the key notion here, right? Using appeals to trauma, claims of trauma, to uh, uh, create emotional salience and then make demands of extreme remedial action. And if you go back and look at the the Jesse Smollett commentary and interviews in between when the incident occurred and when it was discovered that he was full of shit, that's what you see. And this guy's going all just spewing all over cable news and all these interviews and, and oh my God, look at what happened to me. If this can happen to me in America, doesn't this show you that the system has to change and you have to essentially bend to all of my, you know, Know, desires and demands. And that's a very powerful incentive in this day and age. Um, other larger points and larger takeaways from this situation. Just listen, hate crimes happen. It's clear, clearly they do to a number of different, different groups, right? But I think you might be shocked if you really looked at the numbers at how many of them end up being hoaxes. Um, one guy who's done amazing work on this is Wilfred Riley. He's an African-American man. Um, he's a professor, you know, but also kind of a much like Michael Tracy, independent talking head on, I believe he's got a sub stack, but he, he writes a lot on unheard and he's great on Twitter and he's documented hate crimes for, for quite a few years now. And man, I mean, something like 60, 65% end up being false. A lot of these do. And it's re I think it goes back to this perverse incentive structure, right? Where you can just get, you don't just get a cookie and, you know, and someone put in jail, you really get a, a ton of attention and support for claiming to be a victim in these circumstances.
So just see, we'll see what the sentence is. I don't know, people, we've been talking about what uh, the right sentence for Jussie for this hoax would be. I'm thinking one to three years, somewhere in that range. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, he doesn't have a criminal record. Jesse Smollett, this is, he's a first-time offender. This was nonviolent. I'm apt to be pretty lenient with people, first-time offenders, nonviolent, and then after that, you don't get a second chance. After that, you you get the book thrown at you if you reoffend or, or fuck up uh, again in society. Um, so we shall see. Uh, another uh, interesting story that popped up this week that is part and parcel to this kind of victimhood inflation that I just mentioned, Simone Biles. Um, Time announced its athlete of the year for 2021. That was Simone Biles. Let's be let's be real here. Simone Biles probably had the worst year of her professional life in 2021. Uh, she got the yips during the Olympics. It was supposed to be her, you know, one of the crowning achievements of her career. Um, and Simone's a great athlete, incredible athlete, great champion. But 2021, she got the yips during the Olympics. Um, it was something having to do with some kind of like version of vertigo where if she, you know, she believed that if she was in her vault, if she had gone in her vault, she wasn't going to be able to land it and she was going to hurt herself. So she withdrew from most of the competitions in the Olympics. I mean, that doesn't make her the world's great, you know, history's greatest monster, right? Her resume is still fantastic. Okay. But 2021 was not her year. This was not an accomplishment. Yet, look at what the reaction here was once again to failure and victimhood and appealing to human frailty as opposed to appealing to accomplishments and honor. Just piece after piece, the uh, the New Yorker, the radical courage of Simone Biles' exit from Team USA. You go check the Twitter rep- the Twitter search re- uh, results of Simone Biles' brave, and it's just an endless stream, right? And you know, some people piled on her unfairly, and you know, called her a coward, and that's not true. But this isn't what what are we doing here? What is this societal project to now celebrate failure and dysfunction and victimhood as opposed to accomplishment? And these are just uh, you you know you like to believe we start to learn our lessons after situations like Jesse Smollett, but it seems like it's taken us a while to learn these lessons because Time Magazine thinks it's doing society a favor by going ahead and making Simone Biles athlete of the year. And I think this is all this all comes from a similar set of skewed principles and it really I mean, it's it's just an unrecognizable set of values and principles, but it's people thinking that they're being compassionate and more more moral and ethical by celebrating failure. And I, I don't I, I I think this is a bad omen for society, and we cannot continue on like this for that much longer. I mean, it just leads to these absurdities over and over and over again. So switching up from some of these kind of more cultural, social topics and stories to uh, to COVID, Omicron. They got to choose different names for these things. Okay. The concept of a variant just seems to scare people. And then you give it some name like Delta or Omicron and God knows what, and something that sounds sci-fi-ish. And all of a sudden it just sounds so beyond dire, just so much more dangerous. Right. And then we can get into why they skipped. I mean, whatever the, the, you know, the, the alphabet that they were supposed to use, the next name upcoming was Chi, but Hey, you know, can't name it after uh, the leader of China and risk offending him. But that's another story altogether. We'll talk about that some other time, but what we're looking at here is not what we're going to look first off at some of the data and what's going on with Omicron and some of the people who have turned out and show themselves to be really, you know, really credible sources on analyzing COVID data and then also the political reaction to it. So from what we can see so far, much like many variants, not all, but many. Okay. I think a lot of people have absorbed way too much anxiety and concern over just the notion of a variant, right? That, oh my God, you know, thinking that we just have one virus and if there's a variant that we're pretty much starting once again from ground zero. And that's just not the case, right? How was the coronavirus initially described? It was described as the novel coronavirus. Novel means that no one's ever encountered it before. Okay. When a virus is novel, it's super dangerous. You know what? Want to know why? Because nobody's built up any immunity, right? You don't have vaccines. You don't have people with natural immunity and everyone's immune system is encountering it for the first time. Why are there other viruses like the flu that aren't as dangerous? Because we built up societal immunity. It's no longer novel. You've got people for whatever reason and the decades that this has been circulating, that's no longer considered novel. Okay. And how did the flu get to this point? There's tons of variants and the coronavirus is no different. All right. So people got to get past just the instinctual 
anxiety of of the notion of a variant. Um, so the variant Omicron was originally uh, sequenced in South Africa. I think a lot of people and you know a lot of South African commenters um, took issue, and I don't blame them with South Africa being blamed for the outbreak of Omicron when no, they were just the first ones to sequence it. Um, but anyways, I think it, the, the first major outbreak was in Johannesburg. That is in the Guatang province. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, so one individual at a hospital down there, Peter, and you know, who knows, it's Dutch, so it could be Pieter Stryker. He's been great. And, you know, he's documenting Omicron in the Guatang province. And as of yesterday, it seems that case numbers did shoot up. It's very, very transmissible virus, but the case numbers seem to be peaking and with deaths expected, and that's even projecting forward a few weeks because deaths lag cases for deaths expecting to be 25 times lower than the Delta peak. Right. So the the early the early returns on Omicron, which is very evident of a lot of other viruses, is highly transmissible, not as fatal and not as severe. Okay, it's not universal, but it is pretty evident of most viruses out there that and vi- variants is as they evolve, that's what they do. They become more transmissible and less severe, right? Because the virus is looking to serve the general, the, hey, you're going to find uh, immunologists and virologists who are going to give you a much deeper perspective on this. But the general thesis is virus needs to replicate, virus needs to stay alive. If it keeps on killing its host, the virus dies out. So it tries not to kill the host, right? And it tries to spread more quickly. So that's thus far everything we're seeing with Omicron suggests that this is the case here. Um, I would go check out Peter, that is P I E T E R S T R E I C H E R on Twitter. He's got a ton of great information. Um, other information that seems to be supportive of the more transmissible, less severe thesis um, a recent study analyzing just about as many Omicron cases as possible is that this variant attaches itself to the human bronchus, not to the lungs. And that's, it replicates incredibly quickly, but it's not replicating in the lungs, which is why that that's how people die. Okay. With, with COVID. Okay. You can't breathe. It's a, an acute respiratory syndrome. It attacks the lungs. That's what, you know, leads to the severe uh, outcomes and the deaths, right? So apparently Omicron seems to attach itself to the bronchus, not the lungs. And that's where it replicates, leaving people with a cold headache. They're a little sick, but they don't, you know, have to go on ventilators, have major respiratory troubles and then die. And so we'll keep on tracking it. But thus far, the overwhelming majority of the available data suggests that this follows the, the general variant trajectory of more transmissible, less severe. Okay, so that's the hard and fast data and facts. Um, now, the the more impactful aspect of analyzing Omicron and these variants, the political reaction, the reaction of people in power. So um, NBA coach Pat Riley always had this saying that the biggest problem, the reason that teams even the talented teams didn't repeat as champions because once a team wins a title, once a team wins a championship, they encountered the disease of me or the sometimes it called called it the disease of more, meaning that everybody on the team got selfish. They stopped thinking about the team. They started thinking about themselves. And that's why they didn't repeat as champions. OK, you know, all the issue with covid and, and political reaction, the disease of something. OK, all these politicians a thing happens, they see a variant arise, they see an outbreak, and they think, I have to do something. The problem is, that's all they think about. They don't think about whether something makes sense. So I saw an awesome tweet about a week ago that I think just you know breaks down so much. A, a gentleman named Ambarish Chandra on Twitter, and he put together a pandemic logic cheat sheet. The first one was syllogism. We must do something X is something, so we must do X. It's got a couple others in here, post-talk in particular. If X is followed by a desired outcome, continue X. It's kind of the correlation versus causation. Let's focus on the disease of something, the syllogism of we must do something, X is something, so we must do X. New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who you know was inserted in uh, as a replacement for Andrew, Andrew Cuomo, she was not elected. And I don't think enough is being talked about. This woman is a complete utter loon. Right. This woman is the the governor of one of the most prominent states in the union uh, that covers America's most, you know, top and most populated city. I mean, beyond just her reaction to covid, go, go look into this woman. She is kind of 
woke half her assery personified since she's been in office. She has a freaking necklace that says vaxxed for crying out loud. This woman is pure phony signaling, appeals to emotion over reason. And it's kind of scary that a person like that, the New York political system, when they had a choice to choose anyone to uh, to take over for Andrew Cuomo chose this woman like this says a lot of things and none of them are good. So, of course, Hochul, in response to the outbreak of Omicron, she decides that it's time for a statewide mask mandate like like that is going to do anything here at this point with the amount of people circulating with the amount of social and business activity pretty much back. People in New York have been out and about and circulating for six, seven months now. So we got to look at what a baseline is. So whatever the results of people circulating and living in the most densely populated city in North America is, whatever that led to is the amount of COVID circulation and harm and damage that has been in this recent period, right? So if you're saying, you know, it was always the, the claim or the suspicion that if we let everybody circulate and operate normally, the virus is going to spread out of control and all these people are going to die. So People have been circulating normally in New York for about six, seven months now, and not everyone died. Okay, so you have to look at circumstances that we're now encountering, that this variant is now encountering, that a lot of people have built up levels of natural immunity. A lot of people have been vaccinated and whatever the virus is, even if it's more transmissible, right? Like to what extent if everyone's already out in the street simply putting on a fucking mask if you happen to go in a grocery store or go order something or go to the bathroom at a restaurant or all these other ridiculous half measures to wear masks indoors when you know when you're otherwise operating normally like that is somehow going to make any type of material dent in the 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 results from this variant right Uh, it's just the it's the disease of more of something everybody thinks they've got to do something because if they don't do something they're going to look like the villain so you contrast that against the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. Um, Polis has shown himself overall to, you know, he's a Democrat. State of Colorado leans left, at least has over the past decade. It was always historically conservative, but has kind of shifted, become blue over the last few years. And he's been relatively hands-off as a, a Democratic governor for the state of Colorado. He, on the other hand, in response to Omicron, says, hey, the emergency's over. Says, I'm not gonna mandate anything. Here's how he described it. The emergency is over. You know, public health officials don't get to tell people what to wear. That's just not their job. Public health officials would say to always wear a mask because it decreases flu and decreases other airborne illnesses. But that's not something that you require. You don't tell people what to wear. You don't tell people to wear a jacket when they go out in winter and force them to wear it. Even if they get frostbite or pneumonia or whatnot, it's their own darn fault. After that, Polis, you know, he did follow it up with some kind of off color and snooty remarks about, you know, everyone should get vaccinated and how does anyone dare question the vaccine? But fair enough. Fine. That's his job and how he's going to cover his ass. But I don't know. Jared Polis was willing to take whatever heat there may have been. Jared Polis didn't suffer from the disease of something. He acknowledged it at this point. If you have enough people who have built up natural immunity from their body and their immune system encountering the virus, everybody's had the opportunity to get vaccinated for any number of months. We've seen what society looks like with this thing circulated. It's still a harm. It's still a risk, but it does not qualify as an emergency any longer. And acknowledging that there's got to be emergency or truly unique and extraordinary circumstances to allow public health officials to tell everybody what to do and dictate their behavior. I'm not seeing much issue with that. So look, you contrast Jared Polis's response with Kathy Hochul's. And of course, the idiots in California, you know, followed Hochul's path. And if I'm mispronouncing her name, I don't know. She's just going to have to live with it. But anyways, California, New York, always the outliers that always suffer from the disease of something. Okay, they want to look like the heroes. They want to show that we're the serious ones who really care about everyone. And they're unwilling to accept whatever criticism might come along from acknowledging that there are limitations to what we can do to prevent this virus. There are limitations to what we can do to stop its spread and ensure everybody's safety. And that, hey, much like any number of other risks out there and harms in society in ways that people end up you know, suffering injury or death, you got to be able to determine how you want to balance out allowing people to operate normally with those risks 
You let people drive on the freeway. You implement a 65 mile per hour speed limit, right? You don't tell everyone to go 35 miles per hour. If you did, you might save some lives, but you're trying to do a balancing of interest because in an adult society, we understand that there are some risks and, and harms out there and we have to shoulder them if we want to operate at a normal pace. So interesting contrast. Jared Polis, who I don't want to give him too much credit. There's a lot of people uh, from the state of Colorado that, you know, I've, I've messaged me and noted that on the county level, you know, the counties that Denver and some of these other county health departments are in, they're still mandating, you know, a lot of stuff like they, they're still mandating masks and doors and a lot of other stuff. But I got to give Polis credit. He voc he vocalized the proper message. And in this day and age, you know, that's still meeting a threshold that a lot of people are unable or unwilling to meet. So for having the proper message there, Jared Polis, we salute you. Kathy Hochul, guys, New Yorkers, please pay attention to this woman. Tell your friends to pay attention. You cannot elect her when she's actually up for election here. I don't know how she got installed in any position of authority. She should not be. I wouldn't put her in charge of, of making a tuna sandwich. Crazy person with a vax necklace. And uh, New York is unfortunately suffering under uh, the uh, under her thumb currently. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. That's COVID for the moment. Back to sports. And another interesting dynamic and, and little project that American society has gone under recently is to detach the notion of whether or not you're a man or a woman from your biology and your chromosomes. Essentially, it's, it's self-ID, that if you self, you can self-select whether or not you're a man or a woman. And this has kind of played into the gender fluidity movement, uh, transgenderism, which is not new, right? There have been transgender people for a long time. The notion of gender dysphoria and uh, disassociative condition from a person's biology and in their mental state. This is nothing new, right? But it's exploded much like victimhood currency. You've got inflation in this realm as well over, you know, recent, uh, recent period in American life. Let's call it in particular the last six to eight years. So this issue came to a bit of a head recently with an Ivy League sports of all places. So we're in swim season in the Ivy League and uh, a swimmer named Leah Thomas is cleaning up. She broke a bunch of records, won her first five meets handily set, you know, and, and is essentially wiping the floor of the pool with everybody. Leah Thomas was not always with all the other women who, who she's swimming against. She's swimming as a woman. Um, she was not always a woman. In fact, she was a swimmer for the men's pen team for her first three years. I couldn't even find her original name or the name that she went by when she was a man. Um, it seems to be buried here, but it's available information that she swam on the men's team for three years. Did okay, was a, a you know a respectable performer, and uh, and then transitioned to become a woman and is now swimming in the girls' meets and she's cleaning up, she's dominating as a complete shock to everybody. So that has been obviously somewhat controversial. It's made the news recently, particularly as a couple she, the people that she keeps on beating are her teammates, right? One of her teammates finished second in a bunch of these meets. So if you're her teammate, you're sitting there going, "I'm it looks like I'm getting a raw deal." And if you also look at some of the stories released, it seems like Leah is not, you know, is not a a, a great winner. She's a, a bit she's gloating a bit. She's got some comments that like are kind of shocking of like, "Haha, uh, this is so easy. I was cruising, um, kind of bragging that she's still number one in the country. And I mean, if you were born with certain physical advantages that for one reason or another might have shifted, maybe you don't be so flippant and arrogant about your supposed dominance in a sport when you're going against women who did not get those same advantages. So anyways, that has led to. Apparently, there was a team meeting. A couple of the other swimmers on her team spoke up, and the message was, in no uncertain terms, shut the hell up. The coach, uh, the school, everyone involved with the Penn swim team said, we don't want to hear it. Nobody gets to complain that you're swimming against someone who was born as a man and was on the men's team for the first three years of their college career and is now swimming as a woman. You don't get to express any dissent or op opposition to that. So what on earth are we doing here? Why is this, what is this societal project where we think this is, this is a societal good that netting out between, you know, the, the other, all the concerns that we're looking to balance as a certainly trying to balance tolerance and accommodation for people who might have gender disassociated, uh, disassociative disorder. They, they deserve rights as well. Many of them are fine people and we should, society should take certain steps to accommodate them, but there's no shrift 
and there's no consideration whatsoever paid to those who might suffer negative consequences from them essentially self-selecting which type of physical activities that they that they that they participate in um seems kind of odd and how strange is it in terms of looking at the things that you're not supposed to say that you can't say we're looking at the things that you might be punished for these other college swimmers one of them anonymously communicated that she wanted to speak up and express her her disapproval and and uh, over being on losing out to you know a fellow teammate who was swimming on the men's team until about a year and a half ago and she said she fears for professional and personal consequences how completely insane is that that a person has to be concerned about the societal consequences of not of expressing dissent from wanting to swim in competition against someone who was a man and swimming on the men's team up until about 18 months ago. This is the upside down world that we're living in here right now. Part of what I'm doing here on this podcast is monitoring and charting out the things that you're not supposed to say and why you're supposedly not supposed to say them. And that seems to be very indicative of some real I don't know, some strange stuff going on in American society right now. And I th- if we are going to, listen, transgender people are not going anywhere, nor should they, but we're going to have to find a healthy way to integrate them into society and adapt or not adapt societal's rules and structures and norms as people transition. And simply telling, you know, other girls on a swim team to shut up and take their take their medicine while they lose to this you know, recently transitioned person. I mean, that's not going to cut it. This is not going to hold. It's not sustainable. It's a patent absurdity. Okay. And these patent absurdities keep on popping up around this gender issue. Uh, Patent absurdity of somehow JK Rowling being public, you know, woke social justice, public enemy number one, because she believes in biological fundamentalism in terms of gender. And J.K. Rowling, who is always super liberal, always supported liberal causes, maybe it got about a year and a half, two years ago, started kind of voicing her opinion that, hey, nothing against transgender people, but whether or not you're a man or a woman has a biological foundation. If if you transition, okay, you're another category and, you know, we you want to be treated as uh, the gender to which you transition, fine, but we can't ignore biology. Oh boy, did she get a shitstorm and from simply acknowledging biology. And she has been on, you know, she has been public enemy number one. She's been one of the enemies of wokeism since. And she gets death threats. There are people trying to get her disinvited from speaking engagements. I mean, the reaction is beyond belief. And so now, you know, J.K. Rowling's always already a billionaire. She's not a student at the University of Pennsylvania. She's got their entire life ahead of them. So J.K. Rowling has been willing to speak up. She hasn't backed down. She has continued voicing her opinions on this subject. Recently, she treated it, tweeted out on this topic. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. The penist individual who raped you is a woman. This was in response to Scottish police now documenting if you if there is a case of rape, you know, penetration with a penis. If you're a man with a penis who rapes a woman, but you claim to be a woman, they will now log you as a woman. That is absurd. We know it's absurd. You know it's absurd. I know it's absurd. But for some reason, the social mores now of detaching ourselves from a biological foundation for gender inevitably leads to these absurdities. It inevitably leads to the absurdity of someone swimming on the men's team for three years and then 18 months later, you know, a couple years later, swimming on the women's team and just dominating and beating all her teammates. That's an absurdity. Locking people who illicitly and without consent penetrated another person in a criminal manner with their penis as women is an absurdity. Okay, that's why we've got it. We've got to think through this issue more, right? If we're trying, if you know, if there's a goal for toler- for tolerance and for accommodation of transgender people, it's got. We've got to be able to approach that, balancing it out with avoiding these absurdities. Okay, these absurdities, like what I just meant, like what J.K. Rowling just acknowledged, and the absurdities that are going on with recently with transitioned men or boys competing against females in women's sports. Just another note on that, in case you're looking at what the specific policy is there, it turns out that in the the NCAA, their transgender policy dictates that a trans female treated with testosterone suppression medication may continue to compete on a men's team, but may not compete on a women's team without changing it to a mixed team status until completing one year of testosterone suppression treatment. So that's pretty much it. You're a man, you're a boy, one year of testosterone suppression and you can now compete against the girls. I don't see how that is fair, sensible. We're going to have to rethink this through. We're going to th- think this through further, people. So 
A lot of absurdities in the world of sports beyond that, but you know we will get to more than enough of those. Um, something that is definitely on everybody's mind. Ghislaine, I think that's how you pronounce it, I don't know. Ghislaine Maxwell's trial. I'm going to be talking more about the specifics of the trial in the coming weeks since I think that a lot of stuff has happened in the trial, but I think they're going to get to a jury or, or a verdict within the next week or two. So I'm going to hold off and we'll get into the specifics of the trial once we've got a, a verdict there. More interesting to me with Ghislaine and Epstein generally is looking back on it as what the trajectory of this in the timeline from before it reached the public consciousness, right? Most people got onto the Epstein thing in the eighth inning when he got rearrested. And I think it was 2018 or 2019 and ended up and, you know, supposedly killed himself in his jail cell in 2019. Most people hadn't heard of Epstein until then. Right. Uh, but there was the Epstein. There was a whole saga, including, you know, a number of, of legal adventures with Epstein before that. I can recall 2016, it was in the middle of the presidential campaign, and there was a Daily Beast piece. It's actually very good, not apt to give the Daily Beast any compliments, but the Daily Beast uh, Daily Beast piece, the billionaire pedophile who could bring down Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, that, of course, was on Jeffrey Epstein, originally published June 30th, 2016. Okay, so a lot of people forget this. Epstein was already arrested and already convicted on all of this. He was convicted back in 2007, 2008, uh, and given a straight and oddly light sentence that became kind of grounds for controversy. But Epstein was, he cut a plea deal with Alan Dershowitz as his attorney um, for, you know, lewd and lascivious conduct and prostitution of a minor. And it was only 18 months that he served only 13 of in, in the Palm County Jail and was able to go, I think he was able to leave jail once, uh, once one week a month or something on supervised release. Um, very strange plea deal given to, you know, a very powerful guy who was under at that point, I believe 30, 30 to 40 girls had come along and said that, they, you know, at, while they were underage, they gave Jeffrey Epstein, you know, an erotic massage or engaged in some other sort of sexual activity with with Epstein. As part of his plea, they agreed not to pr prosecute him any further. Um, they agreed not to go after un any of his unindicted co-conspirators, who I will get to in a moment. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this stuff about Epstein or that people are suspecting, it was already known, right? And I'm, you know, I, I'm hesitant to think that there's a ton left on Epstein that that we don't already know about there definitely it definitely seems like there's a cover-up for a lot of salacious stuff with his murder or slash suicide slash you know how they are kind of redacting a lot of the documents in the maxwell trial but like we there's a lot of meat already on the bone from what happened with jeffrey epstein i think it's it and i it, it's kind of like the harvey weinstein thing everyone knew harvey weinstein was some ogreish perv who like you know put women in compromising situations, invited him up to his, his office or his hotel room and, you know, and tried to sexually coerce or assault them in exchange for the prospects of, of acting roles. Like this was well known in the industry. It's just that everyone fit, you know, everyone was willing to tolerate it for so many years. And then finally along came Ronan Farrow and Me Too, and they were no longer willing to tolerate it. And similarly to there being other kind of quote-unquote co-conspirators and everyone knew you know Weinstein's assistant and some of his staff that they were completely complicit they were the ones arranging and reaching out to the girls um and you know a lot of the the actors and directors that were in his inner circle and worked with him I mean it was kind of a running joke everyone knew it right so when when the hammer dropped on Weinstein in 2000 17, I believe it was. I mean, it really it wasn't a big expose. It wasn't a big exposure of a lot of new facts. It was just the confirmation and the highlighting of a lot of stuff that people already knew. And I'm wondering if the stuff with Epstein and Maxwell, I mean, maybe not 100%, but probably 80, 85% of what went on, we was already acknowledged that people already know. Um, and a lot of it ties back to that that plea deal in 2008. Um, so an inter something interesting in the plea deal, because everyone now thinks of Maxwell as his only accomplice, accomplice or his only madam. There were four other unindicted co-conspirators in the 2008 plea deal that were noted as kind of his recruiters. Um, and they were all given, or at least there was a promise not to prosecute them. Go check it out. There's a, a Guardian story from a couple years ago. This is actually from 2015. Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Women with new identities run firms from Epstein-linked property. 
Uh, this is about two of two uh, of the women who were the unindicted co-conspirators for Jeffrey Epstein back in the day. Sarah Kellen, Nadia, Nadia, Nadia Marchinkova um, were two unindicted co-conspirators, two alleged accomplice, accomplices of Epstein, you know, who recruited young underage women or young but of age women to participate in the sexual games going on at Epstein Island or with Jeffrey Epstein. And in two, by 2015, they were both running businesses that had business addresses at uh, Epstein's brother. I believe it uh, was, yeah, out of Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein. I don't know. I'd love to get and think a bunch of people would like to chat with Mark Epstein. So these two women who were the other Maxwells, okay, she, she was not his only partner in crime. And it's kind of odd how they've gone, you know, they seem to have dodged the raindrops, gone unspoken. They're not being indicted here. They're not under questioning. There's no chatter surrounding any of the other co-conspirators, uh, unindicted accomplice, accomplices or co-conspirators. So I think that's a real oddity about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial situation that we all know that she wasn't the only one of his his recruiters here, but she's the only one that's under fire right now. And if we are going to uncover whatever that the rest of the Epstein story is, I think it's it's something that people should try turning some of their attention to. So yeah, like I said, a lot more on Epstein, Maxwell, but we'll put that on nice until the uh, the jury has rendered a verdict there. Um, another, another aspect of our culture that is top of mind for a lot of people right now, the beloved franchise, Sex and the City has been rebooted because God forbid there's any successful piece of intellectual property or franchise that does not get rebooted because we live in a very stale and redundant culture these days. Anyways, uh, yeah, had to reboot Sex in the City. Um, I, I not a hate, hey, not a hater. I like Sex in the City. I thought it was a fucking fantastic snapshot and time capsule of turn of the millennia, America, and you know, and cosmopolitan living in New York. And the first couple seasons of Sex in the City, great television, interesting characters. I don't know what happened to it after that, but anyways, so Sex in the City pops up, and you're thinking any of these. Any properties or any kind of slice of life, you know, here's a bunch of young, you know, well, not they're not young anymore, but here's a bunch of people operating in, you know, cosmopolitan American society always has to be wokeified now. You always have to try to throw so some social justice messaging in there. And the Sex and the City reboot is no exception. And uh, apparently, you know, I haven't watched it, so I don't know if there's other wokeified scenes and whatnot, but apparently Miranda goes and sit, you know, she's at some discussion and she accidentally sits in the professor's seat and it, she questions whether or not an African-American woman, oh, well, she didn't think that she could be the professor and, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, obviously Miranda, who's been a lawyer in Manhattan for the past 30 years would be that ignorant and racist, but, and then they float in, you know, some, something of a lesson about the gender non-binary. And of course, you know, uh, she has to go through a struggle session to show that she is a uncouth and unconscious, you know, retrograde who needs to be educated on the ways of social justice and wokery and good God must this be cringe and vomit inducing. Okay. Some entertainment properties or some aspects of culture need to know to stay in their lane. All right. Sex in the city. You're not here to lecture us. You're not here to teach us about principles and values. Okay. You're here to show a kind of pithy and entertaining take on, you know, the lives of uh, the lives and romantic struggles of some women in the city. Okay. And you got like, everyone's going to be better off if you stay in your lane there. Um, one Twitter account that always knows how has a very uh, poignant way of describing these things. It's an anonymous account. It's called Lomez, L-O-M, well, L-0-M-3-Z. Um, interesting, peculiar, you know, interesting account to say the least, not going to be for everyone. But uh, uh, in response to this woke sex in the city scene, tweet was, Sex in the City perfectly tracking the evolution of 2000s era girl boss hedonism and its emotional and spiritual vacuousness leading directly to awful, that would be affluent white female liberal, woke self-flagellation. Unbearably cringe, but no doubt the show has its finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist. Pretty harsh right there. I don't know if I'd quite be that harsh, but it is pretty evident of what the cultural zeitgeist is. These days, you know, 2000, the cultural zeitgeist was show people live, show both, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the burdens, benefits, you know, and costs of living a more libertine, fun lifestyle like these women were, were living at the time. And now, you know, that that apparently is, is that's out of style. Now we have to do cringe lecturing and pontificating about social causes and social values. And once again, why are we doing this? 
Why do we need this? There are more than enough outlets out there for people to learn the right values and ethics and morals without trying to thread it through like the Sex in the City reboot or stick it everywhere else. There's a time and a place for everything. They're great. There are great philanthropic organizations out there. There are social causes and ways of promoting them that make a lot of sense and are a net plus for society. But that we can't be satisfied with that anymore. We've got to try to inject this into every aspect of culture, period. I mean, one that I encountered yesterday was Lululemon. Okay, let's let's just be clear about what Lululemon does. You sell overpriced yoga and athletic gear. Okay, you're not here to, t- to teach us all about society. Like, that's not what you should be doing. But outside the Lululemon stores that we do not tolerate hate uh, or racism or hate or transphobia or anything like that. Okay, like... That's lovely and all, but what relevance does that have to the retail experience? Was there a problem with hate crimes at Lululemon? Were people running into Lululemon and screaming out racial epithets and you had to put a sign up making sure that they that they know that this is not accepted here? No, that's of course not what it was. It was simply the most hollow of sanctimonious signal, like little pegs of signaling to show like we're the good guys and we at Lululemon really care about all these these issues. And why? What? Why? Do we now think that this is necessary? Why do we think through the corporate commercial experience of buying products that we want need to see that, that every place that you can market a product is now a channel and a valve to flagellate social issues? Like this is, I'm sorry, guys, this is not a net plus. And you could say, well, their intentions were right. I don't think their intentions were right. Their intentions were not pure. Their intentions were to like utilize corporate marketing for this really vacuous purpose of trying to flaunt their own sanctimony and flaunt, flaunt their own virtue. And like, it's just make it, it, it provides no benefit whatsoever and just makes every experience that we encounter a little more cringe and dirties it up a little bit. So please, sex in the city, stay in your lane. You did what you did very well. Lululemon, keep on selling your pants. God bless you. Sell them all. You make great yoga pants. You make great apparel. We don't need to hear from you on societal issues. We don't need to hear about how you don't tolerate things in people that you couldn't know about them in the first place. Please just move on from this. So last but not least, interesting last night, Los Angeles Unified School District, largest school district in America, um, announced that their vaccine mandate, which was the most expansive of any school district in America, they were they were pushing it for nine months. They're pushing it till fall 2022. Oh, man, the disease of doing something. Good God. So, my, you know, LAUSD, I'd like to believe it as a special place in my heart. My mother was an LAUSD teacher for 35 years. You know, I've got exposed to some of the inner workings of the public school system and and not just, you know, as a, as an attendee, but administratively. And man, it is sad to see how the LAUSD is operating right now. I mean, the, the, the absurdity of them pushing off this vaccine mandate indicts the notion of the vaccine mandate in the first place. If it was so critical, why is it so? Why is it, it, it something that you can push off for nine months? Which was also part of the problem with the original announcement that if it's di- if it's so dire, then why can't you implement it? Why are you not implementing it immediately? It was pushed off for a number of months. And as it turned out, oh, who saw this coming 30,000 school children did not get vaccinated going to be unable to attend school in person okay and LAUSD took a look at that and said well this this is not something that we can withstand and we don't want to punish these 30,000 kids that's more than we can stand and most of these kids let's the, most of these kids are lower income a lot of them are minorities and really it's a punitive measure against them and it's ridiculous in the first place so of course instead of admitting that they were wrong LAUSD goes pushed it to 2022 okay so as we discussed before like Viruses become less of an issue, less dire, less harmful because more people build up immunity to it, right? More people are exposed to it. In this case, in many cases, you can get a vaccine. So with more people voluntarily getting the vaccine and more children being exposed to the virus and building up additional immunity, which, you know, it's very questionable whether or not that would even be necessary because the vast, vast, overwhelming majority of data and evidence we have is that uh, this virus is not particularly harmful to children. Okay, we'll get into that another time. But look at the utter absurdity of trying to implement a vaccine, mandating a vaccine because of a dire threat. But then because enough, not enough people bent to the mandate, pushing it off essentially for a year. So now it's going to be just as dire in balancing the urgency and the concerns in fall 2022 against whatever the fallout or harm for forcing people to some kids not getting vaccinated 
forcing people to take a vaccine that, you know, given the, the general timeline for mandated vaccines has been on the market for a pretty short amount of time. This does not pass the smell test in any way, shape or form. It's once again, the disease of doing something. They thought they had to do something. They don't want to look like they're not taking this seriously. Thus, they're implementing uh, a panacea or a solution that's not really really a solution a solution that is in fact a harm right and in terms a lot of people come back with the argument there's lots of vaccines are mandated in public schools yeah and you want to know something there's a lot of vaccines that aren't okay there's a lot of vaccines and a lot of different viruses sicknesses and illnesses out there do we mandate some sort of therapeutic or vaccine for every single one of them to attend public school no we analyze it and choose it on a case-to-case basis each vaccine or each therapeutic is determined based on the costs and benefits is does it spread in these circumstances what level of harm is there for children is the vaccine safe and well tested and does it have side effects for the group that we're talking about you go through and you run through this analysis and then you determine whether or not this vaccine should be mandated for public school children but they don't do that here they haven't gone through that process for the vast majority of mandates around the covid vaccine they just say this is such a dire concern such a dire threat the vaccine is available. We're going to ignore natural immunity. We're going to ignore all, anything else relevant to this conversation. And boom, one data point, uh, a single variant, you have to get this vaccine. And look, it goes past the point of absurdity, right? It leads to inevitable, it leads to inevitable fallouts. Like you can't force everyone to get it. In this case, you know, and the problem with mandating anything, whether it's a vaccine or any other law, is leads to an inevitable part and parcel to a mandate is that you punish anyone who doesn't obey the mandate. So you have to look, is the punishment that we are imposing on people for not obeying the mandate fair, right? In the legal concept of narrowly tailored, all right? Anytime you impose on someone's rights, law, rule, or regulation is supposed to be narrowly tailored so that you're imposing on their rights as little as possible. And these blanket mandates just don't do that. A kid who could have already been infected with COVID, a kid who uh, uh, might already have shown, you know, if the evidence continues to pile up, that there is a bigger risk that as you go, you know, as the risk of COVID um, is stratified in, you know, vertically, uh, uh, with age and far more dangerous to the elderly than it is to the young, that the vaccine seems to be in reverse and that the vaccine holds a number of concerns and risks for the young that doesn't for the old. Maybe perhaps because the young are more are more active, we don't have a ton of data there, but it probably would be a good idea to go ahead and gather that data. So we don't do any of this with these vaccine mandates. All that's out the window and it's just, hey, serious people who care about safety support them universally and with unquestionably without condition support the vaccine thus they support the vaccine mandate and if we're going to if we're administrators if we're in positions of authority and power if we're serious people who care about safety we're going to mandate a vaccine and that seems to be the end of it and then look the LAUSD here, I think they saw, you know, eventually reality usually catches up and reality seems to be catching up here and if I'm a betting person somewhere, you know, as COVID starts to recede from the public consciousness over the next six to nine months, somewhere in there, they're going to find an excuse to kind of quietly do away with the mandate period or create just a massive exception to it. And, uh, and that's what I'm calling. I don't know. I think that's where the smart money is. Um, yeah. So we shall see. All right, guys, that was this week's prevailing narrative. Whew. God, I was having a lot of fun. That went by, went by in a flash. Time flies when you're having fun. Hope you liked it, guys. Once again, one things that I want you guys to take away from, from these chats and these pods, I reference a lot of people who I think are super smart. They're great resources. Most of them are on Twitter or have really active Twitters. Go check them out. Um, any of the source materials, you know, I'll try to come up with a repository for the links and the pieces and the source materials that I talk about. But once again, you know, hey, Google's great. You hear anything that I talk about, you're interested in it. It's only a Google away. Um, and yeah, you know, I will be back soon with more information about great guests that we have upcoming. And, uh, you know, look forward to it and look forward to talking to you guys next week. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.